Good morning. Glad to have you here at Rivermont today, and I invite you to turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 24. We're going to be looking at verses 13 to 27 together this morning as we near the end of our study of the Gospel of Luke. A couple of weeks ago, we experienced a Good Friday of sorts. We saw darkness descend upon the city of Jerusalem as the hour of Jesus' crucifixion was upon them. And yet, even from the throne of the cross, the Lord Jesus offered life to a criminal. He, the innocent one, was crucified that we, the guilty, might go free. And last week, Ron led us through the resurrection, the Easter in November. Jesus rose bodily from the dead in victory over our sin and death. And today we turn again to that Sunday, that day of resurrection. It was the afternoon of Resurrection Sunday, to be precise. And earlier that morning, women had gone to the tomb and found it empty. And they ran and told other disciples about it. And Peter and John quickly hurried to the tomb to see that it was empty themselves. The world had changed forever, but each of them struggled to see exactly how. Maybe this morning, you feel a little bit like you're struggling to see too. Maybe your spiritual eyesight is a bit bleary. You struggle to hang on to the promises of God. You can't seem to find what God is doing in your life and because of it, your, your whole countenance is bent toward despair. What does the Lord have to say to you today? Luke 24, beginning in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of our women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that, they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that by your power and by your might, you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Give us clear eyes to see you today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You remember from a few years ago these things that were popular called stereograms? You remember those things? It's when you look at an image and if you stare at it long enough and maybe even cross your eyes, then you can see another image pop out of it. 
Like, for example, if you looked at this print that looked like just a bunch of squiggly lines, the ocean and, and waves, and if you looked at it and stared at it for long enough, you could see a horse in the middle of the picture. Remember those things? They were called stereograms. And I was never good at those things. I would look at them and stare at them, but most of the time I would just end up frustrated with a headache. And soon enough, I learned that there's a technique to seeing the stereogram. You have to study the image up close. You have to get really close to it, like nose touching it close, and then back away slowly so that your eyes can focus on the right spot in the image. And then just as quickly as being brought from darkness to light or blindness to sight, that image would just pop out. What was always there but unrecognized by you could then be seen if you got close enough and examined it clearly enough. On the road to Emmaus, a little village about seven miles from Jerusalem, there were two travelers that gained their sight. They had been there when the women came back with the report of the empty tomb, but it didn't make sense to them. Of course, they heard the words, they understood the words, but the so what was lost on them. It was like they were looking at a stereogram and only seeing the ocean and the waves, but the image within it was completely lost on them. But Jesus did something. He appeared and he got really close and he brought their noses, he brought their eyes in so close that they could begin to have their blindness changed to sight. Their darkness to despair. Darkness of despair to the light of the gospel. And Jesus does the same thing with us too. Like Cleopas and his companion, he brings us close and the real Jesus shines his light upon us so that we can see him. But so often we're blind to recognize and see the real Jesus. How so? How are we blind? Well, first of all, in this text, we see that most of the time, or sometimes, we are blind in our loss. On this road, it's mentioned a couple of companions. In verse 18, we read Cleopas. And now, most commentators suggest that this is the same Cleopas that appears in John chapter 19. And that Cleopas was a relative of Jesus. He was Joseph's brother. So this was Jesus' uncle. And the companion, most commentators agree, was Mary, his wife. And so this was Uncle Cleopas and Aunt Mary on their way back home to Emmaus dealing with their heartbreak and dealing with their loss on a number of levels. They had a nephew in a close family. And not only had they lost this nephew, but it was humiliating. He was convicted of a capital crime. He was put to death, brutally humiliated under the crushing power of Rome. How hard must that have been for them not only to lose a nephew, but to lose him in such a tragic and shameful way? What's more, verse 21, they thought that he may have been the Messiah. They thought that he may have been the hope of all the people, but instead he just got himself killed in a, in a despicable way at that. The narrative just didn't fit in their minds. The Messiah, the, the one who would rule as God over his people in power and in might, he just doesn't go and get himself killed. Imagine the heartbreak and the loss that they felt. Their family, their dreams, their hope of a better life, their hope of being rid of an oppressive and corrupt government, an abusive government, it was all flushed down the toilet. Perhaps in the midst of that loss and that grief was a little bit of disappointment with God. So often it's the same with us. Whenever we are blinded in our loss, when we are filled with grief, we sometimes have disappointment with God too. How does Luke describe them? 
Well, verse 17, when Jesus appeared to ask what they were speaking of, he says, they stood still looking sad. It was unbelievable to them that this person didn't know what had happened. And even more so, it was painful to tell. It was painful to have this stranger come and and pick at their loss and ask them to to narrate their story of why they were so downcast, why they are so sad. Here's my paraphrase of verse 18. Have you been living under a rock? What's up with you? How could you possibly not know what had happened? Everyone knows what happened. Just like everybody knows that all of our hopes are now dashed. The one that we had thought was the Messiah is gone. Rome is now entrenched. Everything is lost. And we thought God brought us to this spot. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like God led you and led you to a particular spot and then it seems like He just disappeared from the path? Where did you go? Leaving you all alone, leaving you feel worried, leaving you angry with Him. Perhaps even today you feel that that withering loneliness of a debilitating illness. Maybe you're in your loss, feeling the grief of being rejected by a friend or a family member. Perhaps you've woken up in the middle of your life and you feel empty, wondering, how in the world did I get here? This isn't what I was thinking I would have in the middle of my life. Perhaps like Uncle Cleopas and Aunt Mary, you've walked away from the funeral of someone you love and you're filled with loss and you're filled with grief. Loss and grief can do funny things to how we perceive the world. That loneliness that comes from loss may feel like you're in a dark tunnel and there's no exit. And yet for Cleopas and Mary and for you and for me, there is hope in the midst of our loss. Hope, living hope, was standing right there in front of them. For loss and grief meet their match in the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. Verse 15 is emphatic in the Greek. It says, Jesus Himself drew near. And Jesus Himself walked with them. Think about that. Of all the places the newly risen King of the universe could be. Of any place on the face of the planet He could be in that moment, He was right there. Walking with His heartbroken aunt and uncle. Walking with them. Just like He will walk with us, reviving our hope in the midst of our own loss. Jesus will draw near to you in your dark place too. For He is hope. He is living hope. And He walks with the lonely. He walks with the weary. He walks with the brokenhearted. For there is hope after loss. There is life after death. There is life today in the midst of pain and loss and grief because Jesus is alive and it changes everything. Jesus walked out of the grave and He assures us of a new life, a life without loss. He proved and He he validated that a day is coming for us when there is no more pain, no more loneliness, no more debilitating illnesses, no more rejection from family or friends, no more empty souls. All of that brokenness is temporary because Jesus is alive right now. And yet, Cleopas and Mary didn't quite grasp it. They didn't grasp the the new heavens and the new earth that are coming because this was Jesus raised from the dead standing in front of them. And friends, the same will happen for you and for me. If we live this life without a vision for eternity, 
without an understanding of Jesus remaking the, this world and, and having all the brokenness and the loss in this world come untrue. If we live that way without that, as Edward says, having eternity stamped upon our eyes, then we will live a disconsolate life. Just like Cleopas and Mary. But the resurrection changes everything. You know, in a child's eyes, the resurrection that promises a new heavens and a new earth, that, that's electric. It's incredible to think about that. It opens up all kinds of, of beautiful possibilities. My eight-year-old son, Isaiah, likes to talk about when Jesus returns. He uses the, the language of revelation. He calls it when Jesus comes down. And when, when heaven comes down to earth and remakes it all, G, uh, uh, Isaiah wanted to talk about it the other night when I was putting him to bed. And he asked me a question. He said, Daddy, when Jesus comes down, do you think that there will be dinosaurs that don't want to eat us? It's incredible. For a little person, that the, the doctrine of a new heavens and a new earth is amazing for a child because the world to come, the world that Jesus holds in His hands, is a world without loss. It's a world without grief. It's a world where all the scary things and the hard things are no more. It's an incredible thing to, to remember and have our, our hearts in the grip of a new heavens and a new earth when the only things that are left are beauty and joy, and there is nothing left to harm us ever again. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus can give us hope of a life that won't be destroyed. Hope of, of a life that will never be dashed, of relationships that can't be fractured, of wounds that are healed, and sins and hurts that are forgiven. See, the resurrection gives us the hope of a life where there is no more war. There is no more hunger. There is no more brokenness. There are no more immigrants struggling to find a way free from the tyranny of people who harm them in the name of God. It will never happen again when the day of resurrection comes. Let your heart dream again about that day. Let your, your heart be lost in that moment when dreams will come true and lost Lost dreams are no more. You see, the antidote to blindness of loss is hope in the day of the resurrection. Secondly, we see in this text that so often you and I are blind to our true problems. Here we were with Cleopas and Mary, and they recounted their tale of woe to this stranger, but they couldn't connect the dots. All this had happened, they said in verse 23, the women came back to tell this outlandish tale of Jesus' body gone. And they thought that if killing him weren't enough, somebody stole the body. That's where they were left. Cleopas said in verse 20 and 21, he was handed over, he was crucified, but we thought he would redeem Israel. He's so right and he's so wrong at the same time. It's almost worth a chuckle. He was killed and we thought he was going to be the redeemer. The key word there is redeemed, which you know is an economic word. It's a political word that means release from some sort of debt. And the problem is that Cleopas knew that he needed to be redeemed. He needed to be released, but he assumed that it was from the power of Rome that he needed release. 
He assumed that it was from that abusive government he needed to be redeemed. His true problem was misdiagnosed, like you and I so often do. Rome wasn't his biggest problem. But rather, it was the power of sin and death that he, from which he needed redemption. He needed to be set free from the prison of his sin. And that was his most pressing need for release. And yet, because he misdiagnosed his most pressing problem, he was disappointed with the remedy. Because he didn't realize that he needed someone to die in his place. The death of the Redeemer was a disappointment. And yet, friends, the cross deals with our deepest problems. The cross deals with the problems that, that, that give birth to all other problems. It deals with the sins underneath the sins. And that death of Jesus upon the cross offers us forgiveness and cleansing and His resurrection promises a new life. And now into eternity a redemption that all of our other solutions we search for, they fail to deliver. You and I so often look horizontally. We look to one another. We look to creation to deliver hope and life for us. When hope and life can truly only come vertically. It can only come from God. How? How do we look horizontally for a sense of life? Well, we attach meaning and identity to respect that another person either gives to us or withholds from us. We feel okay if we have that respect. And yet, having respect that can easily be lost will not offer us life. Or we think material possessions hold the power to make us happy. Or we may use our jobs expecting that they can make our hearts feel contentment. Or our identity is rooted in an education level. Or in whether our spouse is treating us in the way that we long to be treated. If they're treating me the right way, then everything is right with the world. Or perhaps we base our standing on how well behaved or how successful our children are in the eyes of a watching world. Or even our sense of being spiritually healthy is based upon how good of a church we attend. But you see, friends, all of these solutions seek to solve the wrong problem. Our base problem isn't a lack of respect from a colleague or not enough things or nice children. It's not even having a good church. For all these are good gifts and blessings from God, but they don't have the ability to give us what our hearts most search for and most long for. And that is life. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And friends, life only comes through Jesus diagnosing and solving our deepest problems. The problems underneath all the other problems in our lives. And that deep problem is the problem of sin and death. And Jesus solved it upon the cross. He solved it through the empty tomb. His blood for us gives us life. And that kind of life can't be found anywhere else. And yet, friends, if we are blind to that true problem, then the solution of the cross is not going to give us any joy. It may seem unnecessary. If you're here this morning and you think, all of this talk about Jesus dying in my place, a crucifixion, it all seems really unnecessary. If that's you this morning, I ask you to look again into your heart because you've misdiagnosed your deepest problem. Your deepest problem is sin and death and only Jesus can solve it. And joy is only found in the cross and the resurrection. Thirdly, we see in this text that so often we are blind to the promises. 
Jesus spoke to Cleopas and Mary and he began in verse 25, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Perhaps foolish is too harsh of a translation. I think Luke is getting at the idea of clueless. Oh, clueless ones, obtuse people. How can you see and not see? How can you be so slow of heart to believe? And yet he's diagnosing people like me and like you too. Think of for a moment how Uncle Cleopas and Aunt Mary could have had Jesus prove to them that he really is Jesus. That he really is the one who has come back from the grave. How could he have done it? Well, he... He could have reminded them about stories that only a family member would know, right? You guys, do you remember that time when my brother James did that silly thing down at the river? You remember that? I would only know that because I'm Jesus. I'm your nephew, right? Or he could have recounted to them some details of a miraculous deed that he performed that they knew about. But instead of experiences to prove that Jesus is who he said he is, what did Jesus do? He pointed them to the Word, which is exactly what He does with us too. Their experience of sadness and disconsolation was remedied by going to the Word to be reminded of the promises that are all over the Word of God. But in what way? Look at verse 27 again. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Now that all the scriptures could be translated every scripture or the whole scripture or even every kind of scripture. It says he opened the Bible and he interpreted it for them, but he doesn't stop there. He interpreted it in what way? Concerning himself. So what Jesus is saying here, and he says it later in verse 44 also, is that he went through Moses and the prophets, which is shorthand for the whole Old Testament, and he showed them that it was all about him. Now, wouldn't you have liked to have been part of that Bible study? Wouldn't you have liked to have Jesus open up the Old Testament and show you page after page after page where it's all about Him? And yet, although He doesn't invite us to that, He does give us some skills to be able to interpret and understand and apply the Bible. It's what theologians call hermeneutics. And the way that we understand and apply the Bible Jesus is teaching us here is that He is the key. He is the key to understanding the whole Bible. And yet sometimes when we read it, we're blind to that. How? Well, we can read the Bible as if it's all about us. I read it to be inspired, to be better, and to do better. Or we can read the Bible as if it's God's moral instruction book for humanity, like a little religious rule book to keep so we can make God happy. We can read it to find little nuggets of wisdom to guide the decisions that we make. Now, friends, we can get all of that from the Bible, but if at the bottom that's what we're looking for, if that's what we're reading, if that's what we're doing, then Jesus said we failed to understand it. Why? Because Jesus says to Cleopas and later to disciples, the whole Bible is about Him. The whole Bible is about Jesus and His plan for redemption and our living as a response to what Jesus has done. There are two simple interpretive principles that will help us to read any story in the Bible. Because every story, every part of the Bible reveals to us one of two things. It answers one of two questions and sometimes both. One, what does this story or this part show me about my need for a Redeemer? Or if we're like Swiss cheese... 
What does this show me about the holes in my life? What does it show me about my brokenness, my need, my inability to please God? What does this story show me about my need for a Redeemer? And secondly, what does this story show me about God's provision for a Redeemer? Every story, every story in the Old Testament, we can see these two things. And Jesus says, unless we understand our need for and provision of a Redeemer, we haven't understood the Bible the way Jesus reads the Bible. It tells us about our need. It tells us about our brokenness. And it tells us about how Jesus will restore broken, sinful people like us. It isn't simply that Jesus appears in prophecies here and there in the Old Testament. He's everywhere. His ministry is revealed in the prophets and the priests and the kings. He's prefigured in the temple with God dwelling with us. He's shown in the sacrificial system. He's the blood sprinkled upon the ark. He is the light of the lampstand. as the light of the world. He's the faithful one in the story of Ruth and Boaz. He's the miracle worker like Elijah. He's the warrior who fights for his people like David defeated Goliath. He's the tender shepherd like David watching over the flock. The whole thing is about him. Every picture in the Bible is a revelation our need for, or God's provision of our Redeemer. And friends, when we reduce the Bible to being a book about where we learn how to morally please God, we've done it a great disservice. For in reality, the Bible is a book about what God has done. It's a book about what God has done to create and redeem and preserve and bring safely home a people for Himself. The Bible is essentially about the promise that God has made to be our God and we His people. So friends, when you turn to it, when you are feeling lonely, when you are feeling despairing, know that when you turn to the Bible, you turn to pages that reveal how deeply God loves you and how much He pursues you. You turn to see how He has freed you from your slavery that you might live for Him. He has given you promises of salvation and they can't be broken. Why would we read the Bible as if it's simply a story about how we can be better or do better and in so doing lose joy at a clear picture of His work on our behalf? The Bible is filled with the promises of God for sinners and broken people like us. So friends, let's keep gazing into the stereogram. Let's keep asking the Spirit that our blindness would be removed And we can see the glory of Jesus in us and through us. Because friends, as we look clearly at the Scriptures, we will see a resurrection that is hope for us in the middle of our loss and our grief. We will find a cross that is the cure for our deepest ailments, our deepest needs of sin and death. And we will find promises of His work that provide for us joy even in the midst of terrible circumstances. When we read the Scriptures, whenever our world is rocked, We know that we have a rock that stands secure. And His name is Jesus. And we find Him on every page. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that by Your Spirit, You would give us eyes to see. You would give us hearts to understand. You would give us minds that long to study and see Your great work among us. We thank You that You have been raised from the dead and promised a new heavens and a new earth where all broken things come untrue. 
where there will only be beauty and joy, where our sins will be forgiven and forgotten, where our brokenness will be met with wholeness, and where our loneliness will be cast aside forever. Help us to know it, Lord Jesus. Help us to see clearly what you have done for us on the cross that we could never do for ourselves. And what none of our friends or this creation could never do for us. We will never find security and safety and identity from another person. And yet, Lord, we bow our knees to you and know that you are the one who gives us an identity. You are the one who gives us a name because you want it for us upon the cross and in your resurrection. And also we ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see the promises of redemption on every page of your scriptures. By your Spirit, enable us to read that our hearts would be filled with joy. In Jesus' name we ask all these things. Amen.